It's just so good to be with you this morning. As we approach this passage in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37, I'd like to put it into a broad context of the whole Word of God. There's a concept, there's a way of thinking that's very strange to us, which underlies much of the culture, the thinking of the people that we find in the Bible, and that is regional, territorial gods. My God is... My God is so-and-so. Your God is somebody else. Perhaps that is seen best in 1 Kings chapter 20 where we have the king of Syria who comes down and and fights with the children of Israel and the battle takes place on the hillsides, a little bit on what they call the mountains, and um, they lose the battle. And sometime later, the Syrian army comes along and they say to themselves, well, their God is the God of the mountains and our God is the God of the valley. And... uh, we'll fight this one in the valley and we'll win because our God is the God of the valley and their God is the God of the mountain. And the Lord laughs at them and says, I'm the God of the valley and the mountain. There's a song about that, isn't it, that we sing? Um, I was pleased. Uh, I had the privilege of teaching the book of Joshua in another church where we're going through that book uh, as a team. And I I was really pleased when I read what Rachel, what Rahab said. Rahab, who was brought up in a pagan nation who worshipped a pagan god who had their god, she, she says to the spies, she says, um, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had realized who the real God was, the, the God in heaven, the God on earth, covering everything, all the universe. And so the nations around Israel believed that they had their gods and there was Baal mid Peor, another Baal in another, in another city. And the Jewish people kind of thought like that a little bit. Jehovah was their God. And if you wanted to worship Jehovah, you better become a Jew. We, we see that battle in Peter's life. We see that battle in the book of Galatians, where the Judaizers, Judaizers who followed Paul around and caused problems in the churches that he had founded, their basic argument was that if you want to be saved, if you want to come to Christ, that's wonderful. God will save the Gentiles, but you've got to become a Jew first. Get circumcised, become a proselyte, then you can become a Christian. Can you understand what I'm saying here? This, this was the approach. Why, why am I saying this? Because this passage of Mark that we're looking at this morning, Jesus turns to the Gentiles. He turns to the Gentiles. And it kind of bothers his disciples. If you read the story uh, of what happened here in some of the other Gospels, you'll re- realize that the, uh, the, the disciples were not comfortable with that. They weren't comfortable when Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman. So let's take the time to to read this passage. We're going to read from Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus is in um, 
the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, in those villages there. And we read, and, and from there he arose and went, away, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down on his feet. And they said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The second miracle, which takes place from verse 31, the deaf and dumb man healed. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more jealous, jealous, zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished before, beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And I prepared a little bit of a map here, if we can look at it, and I put uh, arrows and numbers on it so that you can follow me um, on Zoom if you want. Do you see the arrow with number one on it? That's where Jesus was when, at the beginning of this reading that we have around this Sea of Galilee. And if you look up above that to the above, to the left a little bit, you have uh, Tyre. That's about 35 miles north of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So he goes north into a very pagan Syrian province. And that's where he heals this young, uh, this young girl. And then he decides to go to Decapolis. Decapolis is four. Can you see Decapolis down below there? Thank you very much. Um, and, um, but to get to Decapolis, you see he goes up to number three. He travels from Tyre to Sidon, and then he goes down to the Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, now, I've skipped the outline, so we can skip pages 7 to 8, please. So, um, <clears throat> to get back into our notes here in verse 9, and on slide 9, uh, he leaves the area around the Sea of Galilee, he travels north. Um, this was the area where Elijah raised from the dead the son of a non-Jewish mother. So there, there's history here, Old Testament history. It's 35 miles north. Um, and Jewish people avoided visiting non-Jewish areas from fear of becoming virtually unclean. They tell us that when they would leave a non-Jewish area, they would actually shake the, the dust off their robes uh, for fear of contaminating their own country. Now, chapter 7, at the beginning, which you've already seen, 
There was teaching there where Jesus contradicted the many customs imposed by the religious leaders, religious leaders about ritual uncleanness, hand washing, food. And Jesus is teaching them that eating some type of food does not make us unclean. What makes us unclean is what we say. In Mark 6, he had said this, uh, I think it's Mark 7 actually, do you not see that whatever goes into a person, person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. I love that phrase. Thus he declared all foods clean. We find it only in the Gospel of Mark. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, envy, deceit, slander, prize, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. In the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus taught that objects and food are not unclean. Okay? That's what we saw last time. In these last verses of chapter 7 that we're seeing this morning, he teaches that people are not unclean. Okay? The first part of chapter 7, certain foods are not unclean. In these verses, people are not unclean, even Gentiles. Even these terrible Venetians. People from Tyre and Sidon had previously come to Galilee to be healed by Jesus. We found that in Mark chapter 4. Jesus withdrew with the disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. They had come down some 35 miles to, to see Jesus. They had heard about him. So Mark is writing to a Roman audience, as we've heard before, and so he, so he emphasizes here that Jesus had also reached out on different occasions to non-Jewish peoples. So let's look at this Syro-Phoenician's woman's faith. Although Jesus leaves the area around the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> probably to, to provide a time of rest for himself and his disciples. He's, he's operated many er, um, miracles. He's taught um, He's delivered people from sicknesses or from demons. The crowd's following him all over the place. He's fed 5,000 people. The crowd thinks that he should feed them again. He's a feast, uh, source of free food. So he leaves that area and he goes somewhere where he can rest and perhaps um, plan with them the future steps in his ministry uh, following the rejection, the hostility by religious leaders. But his reputation as a healer has preceded him even in a different a Roman non-Jewish province, Syria, and he rested in a house, as he rested in a house, a woman came to him and begged him to deliver her daughter, her daughter from demon possession. And Jesus um, accomplishes here, he accomplishes both direct and indirect Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And he anticipates here, he accomplishes here the foreshadowing, foreshadowing of his ministry anticipated by Elijah and Elisha. In Luke 4, Jesus said something interesting. He said, but in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, or Sidon, where this woman lived and where Jesus healed her daughter to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So, so in a sense, Jesus here is doing by going to Sidon and to Tyre and do, make, operating these miracles. He's accomplishing what was done by the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, with his usual historical accuracy and interest in clearly communi communicating to people who lived far away from the area of Palestine, Mark specifies that this woman was a Syrophoenician or a Phoenician from the area of Syria. There were other Phoenician cities, uh, particularly in Egypt, so he's being clear here. <clears throat> to get the Old Testament background here, remember that Jezebel, with her Baal and Astarte worship and false prophets, the ones that Elijah killed, she had brought them into Ahab's court, the king of Israel's court, and she was from that area. She was from Sidon and Tyre. And most Jews in the first century believed that simply touching a Gentile defiled them made them ceremonial and pure. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote this, the people of Tyre are our worst enemies. This is where Jesus went, and the people of Judah thought that they were the worst enemies. There was much resentment towards the citizens of Tyre because much of the food from the rich farmlands in Galilee was sold and shipped there, and many Galileans went hungry because their food was being shipped up there to make money for the rich farmers. This woman falls at Jesus' feet and um, reverence. Um, I love to go to the Congo. I can't go this year. It's driving me crazy. I'm supposed to be there in August, and I just can't go. They're reverent. When we meet the Lord, there's reverence there. And uh, it's one of the things I like about Rosemont because there's more reverence here. There is in certain churches where I teach. But uh, this lady fell at Jesus, fell at Jesus' feet. That's a sign of grief, reverence, respect. And Jesus reminds her that his ministry is first of all to the Jewish people. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, the children is the Jewish people, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, that's kind of harsh. Um, we can read that, we can say, boy, um, Jesus kind of lacked compassion there. And it's true that Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs, uh, silos in the original, that were referred to the fierce, unclean scavengers that were a danger in the streets of many cities. Uh, my dad told us the story when, when he was in the Navy. His ship was sent up north, up into the Arctic. And um, after spending weeks getting up there through the ice and being tired of being on the ship, they were out to go on land. And he went for a walk on the shore up there in the nor in northern Canada. And... Um, four or five big, mean huskies came towards him. My dad was a big man. He wasn't afraid very much, but he said, I was afraid that day. He said, they were big and they were mean. He said, I kept backing up, but eventually I was walking into the water <laughs> and in the Arctic Ocean, and they were getting closer and closer, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And just then, a big Eskimo guy came along and kicked the dogs, and they ran away. <laughs> um, that's the type of dog that's described when we say silos. That's the type of dogs that... Uh, more common 
they lived in the streets, uh, what we call feral dogs. Where I live in Three Rivers, we have a lot of feral cats in our area, cats that have gone wild. I like to get rid of them because I think they're destroying all our songbirds. That's what they live on, I think. Um, so these dogs are, were wild and dangerous. Um, but that's not the word the Lord, Jesus, the Lord uses here. Jesus used the words canaria. It's kind of a diminutive. It means puppies, house pets. So Jesus isn't using a word that talks about these dangerous scavengers. He's talking about house pets, puppies. So it's not quite as harsh as we might think as we read the, um, the, the, our Bible. I think that the NIV says little, little dogs, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Jesus had previously emphasized to disciples that his ministry and their ministry was primarily to the Jewish people at that point. These 12 Jesus sent out, Mark chapter 10, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the passage in Matthew that's parallel to Mark 7, uh, we read Jesus came and begged, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, send this woman away, for she is crying out after us. Apparently she was really very, very insistent. And Jesus answered, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's the context here. But Jesus is testing this woman to see if she's willing to take a humble, lowly position in order to be healed. We have here not meanness, not lack of compassion, but a test. Um, his healing ministry in Israel had attracted crowds, but no true conversions or few true conversions. He had perhaps tired of people seeking healing. <laughs> Jesus came to preach, to present the kingdom of God, to search um, conversions believing in him or who he was, saving him from their sins. And he healed as a mark of compassion, as a proof for who he was, but as well as main ministry. And he didn't want to become a distraction. And so the answer to this dear, this dear lady is very, very surprising. She's sharp, quick. And perhaps she's showing some faith here that's, that's extraordinary in her position. She says the little dogs, these puppies, eat at the same time as the children. <laughs> she says there's enough food provided by the generous souls for everybody. And there's a play in words here that we don't see in the, in the English necessarily. Little dogs, little crumbs, little girl. Three little things here. And so the lady says, well, you say that you come to the Jews first and the Gentiles will be later. But you know, the little dogs under the table, they eat at the same time as the children. <laughs> they eat the crumbs that fell on the ground. And Lord, all I want is some crumbs. She's showing humility here. God's abundance, she had understood that God's abundance to his children was so rich that even a total outsider could share in it, share in it. Even before the cross, when the gospel would be announced to all mankind, she counted on the uncovenanted mercies of God. The Old Testament, calling of Abraham, calling of the Jewish people, Abraham was told that all nations will be blessed in you. Jesus here rewards not the woman's wit, quick thinking, 
but the depth of her faith, without even going towards the daughter, Jesus delivers her immediately. And we contrast here the harshness of the disciples who were bothered by the woman's begging, get rid of her, to the generosity and the compassion of our Lord. And perhaps the disciples were a little bit racist. They had their territorial God. The story looks forward to the spreading of the gospel to all nations in Mark's later ministry in Rome with Peter. So that's that first, this first miracle where we see the power of our Lord who doesn't even go to see that little girl, doesn't touch her, doesn't speak any words to her. You know, he's, I don't know how far away from her in a different house. And he just says, go home, she's healed. What power, uh, what difference between him and some of the miracle workers we see on TV, miracle workers. We turn to verse 31 and 30 to 37, the deaf and dumb man, man healed. Now Jesus moves on now to the region of Decapolis, which is on the, we saw it on the map, west, a little bit southwest, is a large, large area of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he takes a long way around, going north, another 14 miles to Sida, to Tyre, I'm sorry, and then northeast, southeast, uh, avoiding the area around Galilee. He deliberately avoids those cities where he'd done those miracles, and he goes down the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I live in the Maury Sea, halfway between Montreal and Quebec City, and we have an expression. We say, Ali Amari al par Quebec. That means if you were over Montreal, you could go to Quebec City and come back if you wanted to. Uh, that's the long way around, isn't it? And that's what Jesus did. He could have left Sidon and gone down like that, but he went, ooh, like this. Not sure why. Perhaps some things happened here that we don't know about. We'll find about in heaven, not sure. Now, Decapolis comes from a word which means 10, and it's a group of 10 cities on the eastern frontier. And I said west. I'm always mixed up between west and east. Um, east of the Sea of Galilee, excuse me. Um, so they're on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire to the southeast of Galilee. And they formed a group because of their language, their culture, their location, their political status. Uh, in the first century, at least, each functioned as an autonomous city-state depending, depending directly on Rome. And they were very much islands of Greco-Roman culture, pagan culture and language surrounded by the Jewish people. These were 10 pagan cities non-Jewish cities. There were certainly Jews there, but basically they were non-Jewish cities. And so Jesus has gone up to Sidon, non-Jewish city. He's gone to Tyre, passed through there, come down to the Decapolis, this, these non-Jewish um, non areas. So Jesus is reaching out to the Gentiles here. Um, and this is the general area where Jesus had delivered a man from a, from a legion of demons. Uh, you, you know that story. And this man had spread the news about his healing throughout this region. The language describing the deaf and dumb man suggests that the basic problem was his inability to hear, which had contributed to a severe speech impediment. Um, I, um, I worked one time with a, um, <clears throat> with a man who was deaf and dumb. Um, he could make sounds, but it wasn't very pleasant to listen to him. Um, after I worked with him for a few years, I could understand what he was trying to say. Um, I was doing the cost accounting in that, in that, um, in that uh, company, and he was responsible for inventory. And uh, he would come and explain that something was missing, and 
Finally, I'd say write it down for me. He could write quite well. Uh, and he was dumb, unable to speak because he couldn't hear. And apparently, I'm told that we learn to speak from what we hear. That's why if you're brought up in a house where people speak English, you speak English. If you're brought up in a house where people speak, people speak French, you, you learn French first. Uh, we learn to speak. Uh, we learn to announce, enunciate words because of what we hear. So very likely this man, um, the languages suggest that this man was deaf and dumb, but his speaking problems were because he couldn't hear. Okay. Um, a crowd surrounded the man, but Jesus shows his sensitivity by taking him aside in private. I, I like that. That's touching to me. Big crowd around him. And instead of making a miracle, doing a miracle, performing a miracle in front of everybody so he'd look good, Jesus takes this man aside. And that's important. Um, if you can't hear and you're in a crowd and the crowd is talking and making noises, you're not part of that crowd, are you? And um, being alone with Jesus must have been really important for this man. Jesus shuns self-promotion. Uh, he's not putting on here a three-ring circus. And first of all, Jesus touched his ears, we read. And that was important. Jesus could have said, uh, just said a word, said, I'm going to heal you. But he wouldn't have heard that. So here Jesus touches his ears. I think that's another mark of compassion, understanding this man's needs. So first he touches his ears, then he touches his tongue with saliva from his own tongue, as I understand it. That's his other disability, problems with his ears, problems with his tongue. And then Jesus looks up into heaven, the story tells us, certainly in prayer. And then he utters a deep sigh, perhaps an expression of compassion, and perhaps also a sign of healing power as he exhaled. And fifth, he says to the deaf and dumb man, Ephata is an Aramaic word meaning be opened. Um, the Jewish people spoke Hebrew up until the time of the Babylonian uh, captivity. And in Babylon, Babylon in captivity for 70 years, and then as their country came under the power of Babylon, Aramaic became probably the, the common language. Um, part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Part of Nehemiah is Ezra that's written in Aramaic. Probably it was the language that was spoken by the people at that time. Um, similar to Hebrew, I've studied the Hebrew. I took a few hours of Aramaic and decided I didn't want to take any more. Um, but that's what that means. It means to be open. And immediately that man was healed. His ears were made to hear, and his tongue was loose so he could speak normally, immediately. The word normally is orthos in the original. Orthodox um, it means properly, and it's immediate. How long does it take a child to learn to speak? Um, my son is adopted, but he was six days old when he came to live with us. So I, I watched him learn to speak. And when he, first learned, when he first started speaking, it was just babbling, right? And it took a year. Many of you are parents. You can correct me on that, um, how long that takes. Um, this man had never heard anybody speak. We learn to speak by hearing others speak. We copy uh, the sounds we hear from others. 
This is really miraculous. The fact that he opened his ears was wonderful. The fact that immediately he learned to speak, bypassing those years that it takes to learn to speak properly, is really a marvelous miracle on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ here. The touching, the spitting, the saliva on the tongue might shock us. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, we, all have, we all have expectations when we meet our doctors. Uh, I changed doctors recently, not because they wanted to, but because the wonderful, wonderful doctor I've had for many years retired. How dare she do that? Um, having a, finding a doctor, uh, at least in the Maury Sea, a family doctor is a very, very long, difficult process. By the grace of the Lord, I found another doctor. The first time I went to see her for the first time a few months ago, going back at the end of the month again, and um, I had some expectations. When I went to see the doctor I've had all these years, there are a number of things she did. She would touch here to see if my blood was traveling up my brain properly. She would touch the lower part of my legs to see if my pulse was there. I'm diabetic. She wants to make sure that my feet are getting enough blood supplies. She'd listen to my heart. She'd take my blood pressure. There's a number of things she did. The questions she asked, uh, she, of course, she weighed me, and it was always more than I hoped it was. My, my balance at home always says 175 pounds, and hers says 185. Her balance is wrong. Um, <clears throat> but there are things I was, I, 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 I was evaluating the doctor. You know, I'm glad she's taking me on. I'm lucky to get a new doctor, but I want to see if she's any good or not. And she did all those things. She did what I expected. I was pleased, right? And, and so our Lord here is not doing things that we would expect from a doctor. Um, at least to some degree, Jesus is using these symbols and these actions that would have been expected by the crowd. The touching to heal is probably um, expectation on the part of the crowd, besides the fact, as we mentioned, that the man was deaf. And, and they may also symbolize the difficulty of the case. This man was deaf. He needed actions rather than words to reassure him about what Jesus was doing. Maybe he had never seen Jesus before. He's deaf and dumb. He's not quite sure what's going on. And uh, people brought him to Jesus, and Jesus takes him alone. And rather than speaking because he can't be heard, Jesus makes gestures. He, he, he touches him, and that's what was needed. In a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the healing of the blind man in Mark 8.23. And the blind, blind, man, the blind man in Mark 8.23, I'm not sure who will be dealing with that passage, but um, that blind man will, you know, was facing challenges just like this deaf man was. And you'll see what Jesus does with the blind man and without anticipating what our brother is going to teach in that, in that, in that passage uh, remember this, when you listen to this passage, there's some parallels between the healing of the deaf and dumb man and the healing of the blind man because the needs were special. This event is certainly a fulfillment of a messianic, messianic prophecy in the Old Testament of Isaiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Hmm. Jesus is accomplishing here Old Testament prophecies, proving who he is. Here again, 
Jesus commands the man to refrain from telling others about his healing. Jesus does not want to allow enthusiasm about his healing ministry to distract from the message about repentance and the kingdom of God. He is more than a miracle worker. But it's hardly surprising that the healed man and his friends zealously proclaim what had taken place. The Gentile crowd is astonished. He has done all things well. I, I love that expression. And perhaps Mark is comparing Jesus' miracle with the acts of creation in Genesis. Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Is there an indication here that Jesus is the original creator? The creator who in Genesis made all things, and at the end of almost every day, the day of creation we read, and God saw, and it was good. And at the end of all this creation process of verse 31, he said, we read that he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And Hebrews tell us that it was our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who performed these acts of creation. And he who did all things good when he created, here does all things good, even the Gentile crowd says it. He has done thing, all things well. Yes, it's an indication here that Jesus is the original creator by this language. And we have a sign, a symbol, an anticipation here of the coming restoration of the original creation. Romans 8 tells us that all creation is suffering. All creation anticipates with joy the recreation, the reestablishment of the new creation, or the establishment of the new creation when all things will be made new. And by these miracles, that, that is to me my, my definition of a miracle. People are deaf, people are dumb, people are blind, people are sick, people are demon-possessed because of sin. Sin has ruined creation. Performing miracles is restoring the order before the fall in a certain, certain sense. And that's just, an, an that's just a little pointer to what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. And then that, when Jesus, in your eschatology may be different, I don't know, I believe that a lot of things, a lot of things will happen before God finally creates a new universe, new heavens, new earth, and things are restored to order they were, the way they were before the fall. And I think we have here an anticipation of the restoration of the original creation. Just a warning here, let's beware of over-spiritualizing the story by applying the physical condition only to spiritual deafness and blindness. Read a number of commentaries on this passage while I was preparing, and some of these commentaries, fatigant we say in French, uh, did bother me a little bit. I mean, didn't talk about the, the miracle, the physical restoration, the need of this man, the compassion of our Lord. They, um, they, um, they, they say, well, he was spiritually blind. He was spiritually deaf. All right. But let's not go to that point. Um, let's not go too far there. This story demonstrates Jesus' compassion for the disabled who were much neglected in that society. They often lived in extreme poverty. Uh, they could only turn to begging to exist. And we, as a church, we as God's people, need to demonstrate that same compassion to those who are in difficulty. 
And this story also reveals Jesus' concern for the non-Jewish population, anticipating the massive conversion of Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire and the entire world in the book of Acts up to this day. Our conclusion. As often happens in the Gospel's miracle stories, friends led this man to Jesus. <laughs> Certainly their faith contributed to this man's healing. We need to be bringing friends to Jesus. I came to Quebec in the Lord's work in 1968 to Three Rivers. Um, in a period of 15 years, that assembly went from 75 people to 400 people. Massive conversions. We were baptizing every Sunday night, just about. Um, had to rebuild. It was exciting. And that wasn't the only church in Quebec. In the French-Canadian world, here in Quebec during that period, churches exploded. It isn't happening anymore. Oh, we're seeing conversions, uh, having baptisms. It's encouraging, but it's not certainly what we lived in the, in the 70s and the early 80s. As I think back to that period, and I did a lot of we tried to follow up every new contact and baptism with preparation courses and that type of thing. It was very, very clear to me that people were bringing people to Jesus. <laughs> That's why that church exploded during that period. Now, God is sovereign in revival. Um, and that was God's hand on this church here in Quebec. And it was an exciting time for me. I mean, uh, I get excited just talking about it right now, some things that went on there. Uh, when you preach Sunday morning, and there are 25 inconverted, unconverted people sitting there. <laughs> uh, you know, it kind of changes the, the way you preach. Um, but that happened under God's providence and social sovereignty because people were bringing people to Christ. They were leading their people, leading their friends to Christ. And that's not happening as much as it was. And we need to be leading our friends to Christ. Jesus took this disabled man aside, at least in part, so he could concentrate on his needs. In this crazy, rushed, busy, selfish world, we too need to learn to concentrate on people's needs. I was a, on the school on the school board, school commissioner for a number of 30 years, and I uh, was on committees which had a lot of interaction with the Ministry of Education. I remember a deputy minister. His reputation as a busy man who could meet crowds of 100 people, when he talked to you, the rest of the world stopped. It was, I used to watch him. He did it with me. The rest of the room was shut off. And for two minutes or 30 seconds or five minutes, whatever it took, you were the only person in the world for him. I learned a great deal from him. I'm not like that. I multitask. Um, uh, probably a, an idea person more than a people person, I have to confess that. Uh, I learned that from him. Um, Jesus was like that. That huge crowd there in the Decapolis that was falling on, following him, um, he had took time to take this guy apart and deal with him in person. Let's be like that. Let's have time for people. When, one, when, when someone's talking to us, 
Let them know that they're important to us. Note the humility of this Syrophoenician woman. We need humble hearts when we approach God. Bernard of Clairvaux, <laughs> he's a mystery to me. I expect him even heaven. He's the one that wrote that song in Latin, um, My Jesus, I Love You. He wrote that. He's the one that brought Mariolatry into the Catholic Church. <laughs> kind of a, kind of a uh, complicated guy. He wrote a lot of good stuff. He wrote this. It is only when humility warrants it that great graces can be obtained. And so when you perceive that you are being humiliated, look on it as a sign of a sure guarantee that grace is on the way. Just as the heart is puffed up with pride before its destruction, so it is humiliated before being honored. He concluded like this, it is the possession of a joyful and genuine humility that alone enables us to receive grace. In these two stories, Jesus is crossing boundaries. There are many boundaries in 21st century, 21st century Canada. Look what just happened in London, Ontario. What a, what a horrible thing just happened. Lots of boundaries, social, economic, cultural, religious. Three Rivers was the most Quebecois, Parti Quebecois, separatist, French-Canadian town in Quebec. Believe you me. Today... It is full of immigrants from all over the world. And um, our churches are not reaching out to them. Not reaching out to them. Jesus crossed boundaries here. His disciples did not agree, but he did it. And we need to be in the business of crossing boundaries. And finally, I am a Gentile. And I suspect that everybody here is a Gentile. I'm not Sure, I could be wrong. Certainly nearly all of you are Gentiles. And I just want to express this, express this, that I am glad that the Lord God of heaven is not a regional God, not a territorial God, like the gods that people have imagined and invented over the years. Our God is the God of all peoples. And I rejoice that Jesus brought salvation to this woman and to this man. And I'm internally grateful that God's plan of salvation included me, this non-Jew, who is not part of God's chosen people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, who reveals himself to us again this morning, for his great power, healing, hearing the deaf, loosening the tongue, delivering from demons. Thank you for his power to heal Thank you for his compassion towards people who are not his people. This long voyage by foot to visit areas that were looked down upon by his own people. Thank you for his compassion to these people who are so needy. Thank you for the example of humility from this woman. Give us humble hearts, Lord. You know how pride, we talked about it this morning at the Lord's table, how pride destroys us. Give us humble hearts as we approach you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, grant us that we might be like these people who brought this man to Jesus.